Welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, Tyler Crawley, and we're not going to be talking about how hot Hansel is. Instead, we are going to be discussing how hot inflation is. It is smoking hot, hotter than Hansel would have ever dreamed of. And it looks like maybe the only time we're going to be using the word transitory is in a discussion about the word transitory and that it's leaving our lexicon and that inflation is here to stay. Wow, transitory was a transitory use of the word because according to the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, inflation is up once again and actually even more than we anticipated. So yesterday we got the data from the Consumer Price Index for the month of September and it was up 5.4% when compared to September of 2020 and month over month, meaning August to September. I know, I'm just helping you. I know you know what that means, but I'm just helping you along. It's up 0.4%. Now in both categories, we are expecting a 0.1% less increase, which may not seem like a lot. Oh, 0.1%, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that we're still moving up. You know, we heard about the base effect and that eventually these numbers are going to subside and we're going to get back to regular inflation. If not, maybe less than that, maybe less than the Fed target of 2%. Well, when is that going to be happening? And I listen, I was a supporter of this argument being made by the Fed. And now I'm just, uh, I look at data, right? As what was it? Who made the famous comment? Uh, when the facts change, my opinion changes. What do you do, sir? And that's kind of where I am. I was I was on board for this transitory argument, and I'm starting to be less and less of a believer. So the index for all items, less food and energy, which I always love because, let's face it, outside of shelter, the biggest cost for most people is food and energy. Well, mostly because they can't avoid it. You can't just you know stop using energy and you can't stop buying food. So it's funny. They're like, well, everything else besides food and energy are, are, are doing pretty good. Well, yeah, I can avoid those other things. Food and energy are what I need. Now that index was only up 0.2% and year over year was only up 4%. So, oh, see, it's not that bad. It's only up 4% year over year. But let's look at food prices because that is something that is near and dear to my heart near and dear to many of our hearts. And man, food prices are skyrocketing. You know this if you've been to a grocery store and the data also is telling us this. Month over month, a 0.9% increase. That's almost 1%. I mean, year over year, you're looking at 12% if you annualize that. Now, looking at year over year, 4.6%. I mean, these are big jumps. And then when you get like more detailed, it's even worse. Meats, poultry, fish, and eggs, which are a category saw a jump that's now double digits. Year over year, up 10.5%. Just in one month, up 2.2%. And that's like the American diet right there. How are you eating a mood? Or I should say, how are you eating a meal? (laughs) You're going to be in a bad mood if that's the meal that you're eating. Because if you're eating meat, poultry, fish, or eggs, I don't know how you avoid those things. You are looking at a 10.5% increase than what you were paying from the same time last year. That is not good. But here, listen, I don't want to be the bearer of all bad news. There was some good news in the CPI report, and that was if you're a traveler. If you're a traveler, things aren't so bad. For example, if you're someone that's looking to travel by used car or airfare, because airline fares fell 6.4% in just a month. Year over year, they're now up only 08 That might be a little different maybe if you're on Southwest. Used cars and trucks, which saw a 
gigantic price increase starting in the spring and finally started moving in the opposite direction. They're now down for the last two months, but they're still up. I mean, yeah, they fell 0.7% month over month, but they're still up 24.4%. Might want to go new at this point, but those are still up. And some other notable jumps, uh, energy up 24 0.8%, new vehicles up 8.7%, tobacco and smoking products up 6.7%, and then going to a restaurant, your costs are up about 4.7%. Once again, that's all year over year. Those aren't monthly jumps. Those would be pretty drastic if they were uh, monthly jumps, but still year over year, that's, those are some pretty big numbers. And so what's going on here? Well, I got some bad news because it looks like it's actually going to maybe get worse. That's This is why I'm starting to sour on the transitory argument. So shelter prices have remained during this whole inflation situation relatively stable thanks to low rates and falling rents in major metropolitan cities during the pandemic. That's not the case anymore. We're going to talk about this in a second. You already know this. Mortgage rates are moving up. Rents are skyrocketing, especially in major cities. We saw a report, it was either this week or last week, my, my week's blend, where rent prices jumped the most we've seen in decades. So this, this era of low-cost housing is coming to an end, and that's kind of a big deal. Economists have been concerned about this, mostly because shelter makes up nearly a third of the basket for CPI inflation and 40% of the basket for core CPI. The White House noted this concern last month in a report saying, quote, our analysis, however, suggests that these higher shelter prices are likely to soon show up more clearly in the monthly CPI, potentially adding several more basis points to monthly inflation than they do now. Once again, this is why I'm souring on this position, because I do think we are going to see some easing in the supply chain and we are going to see some of these other prices fall. But when shelters start moving up like they are right now, we have a problem. (laughs) We have a big problem because they are such a huge part of our spending that when they start moving up, even if it's just three, four, five percent or more, that's going to be a big problem. And I have to assume that the Fed originally thought that supply chains would normalize by the time that we started seeing this movement in shelter prices, and that's not happening. And so, as I said, it looks like inflation might be here to, unfortunately, stay. I don't know how long, but let's just say it's it's not that good right now. And I mentioned rates going up. Well, surprisingly, I was kind of surprised by this, mortgage demand saw a slight uptick up 0.2% from the week ending October the 8th. This according to the weekly data that we get from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Not surprisingly, rates are moving up, so the refi index fell 1% from the previous week and is 16% lower from the same week one year ago. But the purchase index was actually up 2% when compared to the previous week, but still down 10% from the same time a week, or I should say a year ago, during the same time during that week. The refinance share of mortgage activity has now fallen to 63.9% down from 64.5% from the previous week. But this is all being caused by rates. Rates are continuing to climb for both the 30 
and the 15-year, the 30-year fix, the average contract interest rate, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, climbed four basis points to 3.18%, which is 18 basis points from the same time a year ago. That's when we started getting around that 3% sweet spot, and it really became this sort of psychological impact where people are like, whoa, 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 I can get a sub 3%, right? Yeah. I'm going to refi. The 15-year fix is still below three, but it did see a jump week to week, up three basis points to 2.48%. And that rate is actually still lower than the same time a year ago when it was 11 basis points higher. Joel Kahn, the NBA Associate Vice President of Economic and Industry Forecasting, said applicants climbed despite the higher rate, saying in a statement, quote, Mortgage rates reached their highest level since June 2021, but application activity changed little this week. The increase in purchase applications was welcome news, but was primarily driven by a 2% gain in conventional purchase applications, which kept the average loan size elevated. So it's a good thing that we're seeing conventional loan limits jump up because uh, we're not seeing any drop yet with regards to home prices. Now, speaking of home prices, We know home prices, they are skyrocketing. They've been skyrocketing for a while. Will this be the month that we finally see a decline in year over year? We've seen no data yet, but we're still waiting for data from the NRA, or excuse me, the NAR. There we go. Not NRA, the NAR. And of course, the gold standard, the Case-Shiller Index. But a lot of this is being driven by low inventory. And I mentioned this yesterday that we were going to talk about this. There was a report by Diana Olick over at CNBC. An analysis was done that said that we are not underdeveloped. And in fact, we are on a path to overdevelopment, which will shock a lot of people in housing because we've talked about this many times on the podcast. We're anywhere from 1 million to 4 million homes underdeveloped. And here you have this argument that no, 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 actually we're fine. And in fact, if we continue on this path, we are going to be overdeveloped very, very soon. So who is making this accusation? Well, Dennis McGill, he is director of research at Zellman and Associates. And he told CNBC, quote, current supply of homes for sale is not indicative of the overall need to build more houses. So why does he think this? Well, McGill argues that, quote, There is a downward trajectory of population growth, household formation as well, that's really going to undermine the need for what's built. So what he's saying is, is that, listen, you look at the data and the population is getting smaller, household formation is getting smaller. And so where we are is we're kind of at this choke point where we're at the maximum situation and we assume that demand is going to continue, but it's not. And that what's going to happen is we're going to keep building houses, demand's going to fall, and we are going to see home prices drop. That's his argument. That's basically what he is saying. And McGill's partner, Ivy Zellman, who's famous for calling the 2008 subprime housing bubble, so he does have a lot. Anyone that called the 2008 housing bubble has a lot of clout, especially when it comes to housing. He backed up McGill's argument, telling CNBC that what's going on right now is the housing market is just too hot and it's not going to last, saying, quote, there is just a massive amount of capital that's coming to this space. We actually believe the industry is already overbuilding 
with regards to the single family to normalize demand by roughly 20% and about 10% for multifamily. So we couldn't be on more of an opposite side of where the market is and where the industry is. Frankly, I agree. I mean, he's they are lone voices right now when it comes to housing development. Now, Robert Deitz, who is the chief economist, or is it Dietz? Deitz, Dietz, the chief economist with the National Association of Home Builders, surprisingly, has a different opinion on this. He said he understands where McGill and Zellman are coming from. He told CNBC, quote, I have seen Ivy's thesis and do agree population growth is slowing. And that's the reason why the old normal, that's single family with multifamily construction of about 1.8 million starts per year, is too high. But where Dietz disagrees is with the overbuilding argument. He said, quote, we need 800,000, 900,000 single family homes for household formation growth and another 200 to 300,000 per year for replacement housing and second homes. So where do I stand on this? Because I mean, this is an interesting argument. I like the contrarian point of view, no doubt about that. But here is my take. This is just an overall suggestion. I would be careful with long-term population predictions, mostly because it's funny is a lot of people still believe that we are on a path to overpopulation. This all started back in 1968. There was a book that was written by Paul Elric. It was called Population Bomb. This was written in 1968. He predicted worldwide, not just the United States, worldwide famine in the 70s and 80s that would be caused by overpopulation, which would then lead to major societal upheavals. And he advocated for immediate action to limit population growth. And some people took his argument seriously like China with the one child policy. And so there was this belief that we were just going to continue growing and growing until we were going to use all resources and we were going to you know shrink just because people were going to die. It was going to be you know, Armageddon. And well, that didn't happen for a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons was innovation. Uh, we figured out new ways to grow crops. We figured out new ways, production, globalization, all of a sudden, scarcity was really only a problem in, what, communist countries for the most part? <laughs> no time in my lifetime have I ever worried about going to the grocery store and something not being on the shelf. And in fact, what's happening now, so here we are, what, just over 50 years later? And what is the big concern? Are we worried about famine? Are we worried about shortages of food? No, we're worried about the exact opposite. That's where we are right now. And in fact, there was an interesting piece at the New York Times a couple months ago that argued that the era of high fertility is ending. The New York Times said, quote, the change may take decades, but once it starts, decline, just like growth, spirals exponentially with fewer births, fewer girls grow up to have children. And if they have smaller families than their parents did, which is happening in dozens of countries, the drop starts to look like a rock thrown off of a cliff. And that's a big concern. I mean, you look at a lot of these developed nations, population growth has slowed so much that we're not even seeing replacement level births. People are now having fewer kids than the parents. So they're having less than two kids per family. And Europe is is really having a, a hard time. I've seen some estimates that some European nations might have no 
native born people in like a hundred years. <laughs> like it's, it's a major issue. I mean, fertility has dropped all around the country and even major places like China, India, Mexico. Now China, obviously the one child policy is, is has slowed their population, but places like Mexico and India where you have seen no policy to stop that they are seeing births slow and countries like America, we've been able to kind of avoid this situation because of immigration. And the only reason I bring this up is because my point is don't make predictions about this because you don't know what's going to happen. And so all these people who are projecting, oh, no, America is going to see, you know, fewer this and fewer that. Sure, maybe that might be true for 10, 20 years, maybe 30. But once you get past that, we have no idea what's going to happen. There could be a fertility boom for some reason. We have no idea. Remember all the people who said that there was going to be a fertility boom because of the pandemic and we've seen the exact opposite. So whenever it comes to making population predictions, I would be very wary of trying to do that, especially on a long-term plan. And so it's very, I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying that you might see a reduction in population. What I am saying is be careful with making that prediction because, I mean, I'm not kidding you. There are people to this day who still believe that stupid book by Paul Elric that has not even come close to coming to fruition. And they still believe it. There are still people that are arguing we need to do something to limit population size. And all the long-term projections are saying one thing. And that is, in fact, there's only one continent that they are projecting a hundred year population growth. And it's, I think, Africa. Every other continent is going to see a reduction in population. So I'd be very careful with making any long-term population predictions so like maybe for 10 20 years but anything after that mm, you don't know what's going to happen to society there could be some huge thing that all of a sudden everyone's having 10 12 kids like they did 100 years ago so i i'd be very i'm 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 not going to make a prediction because i know how dumb it is because the last one was horrific it was it was horrible and yet people still believe it people still think we have a overpopulation problem and that we're going to run out of resources when the real concern is we're going to run out of resources because we're not making enough people. That's where we're going to. It's like right now with this, what's happening with employment. We don't have enough people to put things on the shelves or to, to pick crops or to drive the trucks or to do whatever. That's the issue. It's not the growing or creation of the product. It's the, do we have people to put it on the shelves for people to buy? So I would be very wary of anyone making any kind of uh, population predictions, especially anything over, say, five years. All right, we got to go. We are out of time. You guys enjoy your Thursday. I will see you back here Friday morning for always the best edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait. Wait.